Hey, how's it going? This is Matt here from Silver Fortune, joined once again by uh, one of my viewers, I think favorite guests, uh, Lewis from his channel, Smell Gold. Lewis, how are you doing today? Matt, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I like these discussions because I, I think you and I, um, even if we don't always see eye to eye on everything we talk about, um, I think we have a civil discussion about it, uh, an intelligent discussion I think a lot of our, our viewers like. And, and so usually these videos are shared on both my, my channel as well as yours. Um, there's a ton of stuff to talk about, uh, but I did want to start off with precious metals and kind of get your take on, I guess, if you want to call it recent movement, there hasn't been a lot of movement recently. Um, but I guess the big question here that I think a lot of people are asking is, are we at a inflection point coming up here? Uh, kind of towards the end of 2018, um, it seems to be the case that metals are going to break out one way or another, either either down below $14 for a while, or um, what, what I tend to think that they'll do pretty soon here is, is kind of follow the seasonality pattern that they have over the last... Uh, couple years at least where December tends to be a down month, maybe the lows for the year or pretty close. And then heading into January, February, March, they tend to recover. But I wanted to get your take on, on, you know, are we seeing, are, are we about to kind of round a corner here for, for silver and gold? I actually think so. I have, I did a blog post a week or two ago talking about all of the inflection points that we've had. And the issue we've had in the precious metals markets with inflection points is they come and they go. But I think we have a bunch of them. And they generally, what's happened in the past few years, they get solved. And so, for example, the stock market starts to fall in early January, early, uh, early January 2016, early January 2017. Everyone says, this is it. This is it. And then it gets settled. But right now we have a number of issues on the table. We have China, which has not gone away, though we have not sorted out whether there's going to be a prolonged trade war, what the impacts of it will be, if there is indeed a, a resolution, what the impacts of the resolution will be. So you have that issue. Then you have the stock market has been at all-time highs for years. And the other day I did some research and I saw it over the last 10 years, the GDP growth has been 25%. That's the cumulative GDP growth from like 14 trillion to 18 trillion in the United States. And the stock market's gone up threefold. So you can't really continue at that rate. That's showing that the stock market is way ahead of itself. So again, we keep thinking, well, when the stock market finally reverses, that money will flow into precious metals. Problem is the stock market hasn't reversed. But now we're seeing issues with the Fed raising rates. Perhaps we now had the inverted yield curve which I also did a video on, which has historically shown that a recession is coming within six to 24 months. Now, the reason I don't place a lot of stock in that is a recession is always coming at some point in the business cycle within the next six to 24 months, other than the past nine years when we haven't really had a recession. But there's only so long you can continue to do market intervention to keep the markets going until at some point you really run out of steam unless you just want to totally create false markets, which we may be where we're at, Matt. But the idea is that we've had these inflection points and they've never panned out, or like Brexit, and then, well, it's not that big of a deal. But I think right now we do have a lot of issues on the table. And what's very encouraging to me from the precious metals is in the last three weeks, we've had the markets shoot up 
and the market shoot down. And in both instances, gold especially still rose irrespective of whether the markets went uh, going higher or the markets went lower. Now, normally you'd expect when the markets crater that the gold and silver would take would take a bid. But uh, when the markets are going up, gold is still going up, and that tells me that that volatility of up and down is actually helping gold, and then to a lesser extent, silver. And you know, my view on silver is that silver has to follow gold, and gold has to break out first before silver goes. And if gold has a sustained bull run, then silver certainly will follow. Yeah, you know, that's kind of, uh, I guess, uh, you, you and I agree that silver tends to be more volatile. It falls more, it rises more. Um, and I, I'd, I'd kind of agree with that. You know, I talked to, uh, I think this was last week, um, Steve San Angelo. Uh, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with him. I'm sure many of my viewers are familiar with him. Um, and oh, yes. it's something and it's something he was talking about in terms of, of precious metals is that, you know, those of us that are on kind of the more um, real money side of things, uh, the, buying the physical and all of that, and, and, and how we kind of swear off sometimes, like, uh, who would just buy SLV when you can buy, you know, straight up silver? For for most people that are looking long term, it might not be a great option, uh, something like SLV, a, a paper contract. But he talks about how, you know, if we want to really get a rally going in, in precious metals, we're, we're not talking uh, $2,000 gold, $50 silver, anything like that. But like, could we get gold up above 1300 again, 1350 and, and maybe silver up to 17 or 18 again? Um, he sees that rally kind of starting in the paper markets, which is obvious i mean it is a completely paper market but but a demand driven rise because of a shift in i guess uh per perception i guess and where the markets are going among among hedge funds technical funds etc and so you know once you see them rise above a couple key levels you'll see um the, their moves into to silver and gold kind of shift uh, from a from a neutral or a short position to a to a longer position and i you know i tend to agree and i can we're seeing that right now. I mean, there, there have been periods over the last year where we've seen people come out, you know, a host of articles or whatever experts come out and say, um, you know, we're thinking about shifting more into gold. We're, we're kind of turning bullish on gold for reasons A, B, and C, and it hasn't really turned around. And so this could be, you know, totally false alarm, but, you know, kind of in line with the seasonality and whatnot. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see oh. if, yeah. Uh, well, here, here's this thing, uh, back up Steve on that. If you look at, both the physical and the paper markets. Right now, for the last couple of months, the net commercial, net non-commercials have all been very close to short, if not outright short. That's on the paper side. Yes. On the physical, on the physical side, we've had uh, we had the worst year. It's not finished yet, but I believe the mint is about to shut down the U.S. mint. And they only sold about 15 million, 15.3 million American silver eagles, the lowest since like 2007. Now, the physical market for silver, let's focus on silver. In 2015, the investment demand was between 22 and 25 percent of overall demand. And anytime you have investment demand, that eats into the available silver that's otherwise used for industry. And in the last two years, the physical demand for silver globally has fallen about 60 to 70 percent, so that now investment demand is about 12 to 13 percent. So what Steve is saying is that if, and I believe you're saying this as well, and I would mm -hmm. agree, that if you have a move back into investment silver, 
seeing that the other demand for silver, the demand for silver for industry, solar panels, electronics, has remained relatively constant. It's not going gangbusters, but it's remained relatively constant. And that Indian silver demand for silverware and jewelry, which are the two largest portions of demand, are increasing. If you add to that, then finally, an increase, it doesn't even have to be back to 2015 levels, where it ended up being silver demand for physical investment products like silver eagles, Canadian maple leaves, silver bars, things of that nature. All you have to do is add in on the physical side instead of keeping the whole pie the same size or and or growing the pie and having that 12%, not necessarily of investment demand for physical silver, go not to 25%, but bump it up to 18%. And then you start to see somewhat of the tightness and somewhat of the interest in silver. And then that probably flips over onto the paper side. So I don't think that uh, moving from off the bottom to 14 is uh, a stretch at all. And I think if you continue to have turmoil, as we mentioned, plus there's U.S. domestic turmoil with the Democrats coming in, you've got the whole Mueller probe, You've got the Clinton Foundation issues, which we're not going to go into. You've got the French yellow jackets. You still have the Brexit stuff out there. So there's a lot of reasons now where this turmoil has been managed to settle itself out, settle itself out, sort itself out, and assuage the markets, calm the markets. Uh, at some point, there is a there is something where people say, "Let me just move a small amount over into the precious metals and." Silver especially, you don't need to move much over to move the market because it's a $13 billion market. When I say $13 billion market, that's give or take the value sure. of an annual you know, mining supply of silver at the current prices. Yeah, no, I absolutely get what you're saying. Yeah, basically, you know, what he's saying is that there's a paper side of it. But, you know, this this physical demand, it'll come eventually, uh, coins, bars, etc. But um, it's there's kind of a basement to, to how low, I guess, physical demand, in theory, how low it could go for investment demand, but that with market turmoil, with a move up, you know, a significant move up or down in metals, because that tends to be what, uh, you know, increases demand, then we could see um, uh, the, the investment uh, physical side of things uh, matter more to the price than just what the paper markets are doing or what's just going on in the industrial side of things. You know, um, I had two kind of interesting um I guess observations on what you're saying earlier. The first one was uh, uh, I was listening to uh, I think it was Chris Martinson from from Peak Prosperity the other day, um, and and you know you use the term and I use it all the time too, uh, business cycle, uh, and he was talking about how you know in the last uh, ten years plus now um, we don't really have a business cycle anymore. That it's more accurately could just be considered a, a credit cycle, right? Because because a business cycle makes it sound more more corporate driven or something, whereas now it's more debt more uh, centrally right. driven by, by um, central banks. So I thought that was kind of interesting, uh, just his observation on, on, on that. Um, you know, the other thing I wanted to talk about uh, was the, um, uh, the, the Fed. You're, you're talking about the Fed and their, uh, well, well, I guess less confidence in them following through in their original plans of, of uh, tightening monetary policy by, by you know, another, I guess, one or one and a half percentage points in, in interest rates and continue to unwind their balance sheet. Um, that along with the, the yield curve inversion. I was wondering if you give your thoughts on this kind of just decreased confidence in uh, the stock market, the Fed, the economy, 
um, which I think I, I think it's it's fascinating. You know, if you went around and you asked uh, some mainstream uh, analysts, economists, etc., maybe a year ago, even six months ago, when we had that really high GDP print, um, and you asked them, you know, what what are the odds of a recession uh, occurring, you know, in the next twelve months, or what are the odds of the Fed uh, halting their current rate hike policy in the next twelve months? They would have said, you know, slim to none. I mean, if you look at the data, if you look what the Fed's saying, if you look at this, but now all of a sudden it's shifting to well, yeah, the Fed said this, but we're not so sure if they're going to fall. You know, just a lack of confidence in what the Fed is saying. But I was wondering if you can kind of give your thoughts on that as well. Okay. Well, on the credit cycle issue, that is definitely true what Chris is saying, because we've had market interventions from central banks on a massive scale. And the goal there is to boost asset prices. There's no two ways about it. It doesn't boost, per my example, GDP up uh, 25%, stock market up uh, three, threefold, 300%. That's really show, or 200%. That's really showing that that is the goal of central bank intervention. So the business cycle is less important than the boosting of assets, which are not in a cycle. They've just gone, they've, they've just um, moved higher and higher. And you see that from the EU, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, China's off the charts. Every central bank is intervening to move everything higher. And as you say, well, what does that do for confidence in the Fed? What the Fed has been trying to do is distance itself from the other central banks and say, hey, we're not we're not at zero interest rates. We've got rates up over two percent. We're not doing QE. We're reducing our balance sheet and they're trying to get away with it. And if you remember the whole point or not the point, the justification they were saying about QE, it's just temporary. And once we reach the term was called escape velocity, where the economy can go off on its own we'll start to unwind this and we'll start to raise rates. Well, the economy never reached escape velocity, but the markets did. They kept going higher and higher and they've managed to keep those stock prices higher. And the, and I think that the U.S. has its number one goal is to protect the dollar. And that's why the Fed raised rates to make sure that the bonds are on sale and people would still want to buy U.S. treasuries because they pay a rate of interest. And it also boosts the value of the dollar index versus the other currencies. But also, the second most important thing to them, they work in tandem, is keeping asset prices on the U.S. stock exchanges higher. Why? Because it brings money back into the United States. You see the Swiss National Bank has a billion dollars invested in U.S. stocks. The Saudi Arabians have even more. And the idea is to keep this dollar and the stock market both with a lot of confidence. And they do that, and they're very clever about it, by timing their rate hikes, what they say about rate hikes. And what you saw yesterday, they appeared to cry uncle in a sense, where late in the day where it looked like we were going to have our second day of markets just cratering again, the Dow was down another 700 points, all of a sudden, magically, the Wall Street Journal has an article, very nebulous, that the Fed officials are thinking about changing uh, wait-and-see policy on raising interest rates, and boom, stock market turns around, regains a few hundred points, and problem solved. But this is my point back to all these turmoils and all these putting the fingers in the dike and all these different, you know, shutting down each bit of turmoil. There is a point where you can't keep doing it. Or at least this is what we've all been saying. Um, but maybe, just maybe, we are reaching that inflection point where you can't keep putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. You can't keep reheating the souffle. And at some point, you have a bit, at least a correction that they can't control. And people see this volatility 
they see that gold and silver have been constant during this. We haven't mentioned cryptocurrencies, which have taken a complete dive. So there's no safe haven there for all the store of value <laughs> people out there. Oh, Bitcoin's a store of value. Yeah, buy it at 20,000, hodl it to 3,300. So gold is really showing the store of value. Silver is showing the sister store of value, the little brother store of value. And that shouldn't take much for people to realize as they're seeing this volatility back and forth. And again, the Fed can only do so much, and they are masters at it. You have to give them credit. They did manage to take a tepid economy and boost into a roaring economy, I mean a roaring stock market and a roaring housing market. But just like China, it gets ahead of itself. It's all debt-driven or interest rate or credit-driven, as Chris Martin would say. Yeah, you know, to, to, to add to that, talking about the stock market, it is, you know, as we saw yesterday, uh, it is incredibly easy for the Fed to boost the stock market. They just need to leak a little thing to the press. Like, they don't even need to say anything. They, the press can just say, we heard from a Fed official, such and such. Right. And all of a sudden, as you saw, the Fed market or the, the, the stock market absolutely turns around on the news. Uh, now, the Fed I, I, didn't even call a press conference. They didn't do anything. They leaked to the guy at the Wall Street Journal who puts out a tweet, next thing in a little article, and the stock market recovers. Right, exactly. Now, what's what's interesting, and this is another observation I heard recently, so by no means my own idea, and I forget if this was Chris Martinson or if this was Julian Brigden when he's on the uh, Macro Voices podcast, which is a great podcast for, if you, if you don't listen to it or my viewers don't, it's a great one out there. Uh, anyways, he was uh, this individual. He's talking about how pumped up the stock market is not a big deal for the Fed. And again, we saw more evidence of that on Thursday. Um, but the one thing that the Fed can't easily do without significantly changing its policy, and we're talking like significant loosening ultimately, or at least stopping what their, their current plans for for interest rate hikes and, and balance sheet normalization, is is the housing market, which has kind of become a... a, a, a a pain point, I guess, for the economy over the last couple of months. A lot of signs of, of weakening, not not full blown collapse, of, but but just a lot of different signs. And I know you are um, you have some experience in the the real estate market, the housing market. Um, but that's something that the Fed can't, I guess, um, pump up quite as easily right. with 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 just a, a quick leak to the Wall Street Journal. They, they kind they kind of can, because they can do what's called dovish rate hikes. Which sure. is they raise the rate, but then they say, well, we're not sure it's going to happen next. And that forward guidance does have an impact on interest rates and could rein them in, even though they may sneak a few more rate hikes in on the Fed funds rate. But you're right. It is much harder because there is a real world impact that people have to actually dig into their pockets and pay a price for a house based on their income and the credit and the mortgage based on how much the percentage rate is. Whereas stocks, you know, whether Apple is $300 a share or $600 a share, doesn't really matter. Maybe Apple does because it's the largest stock. But for many stocks like Tesla, it doesn't matter what your income is. You could still buy it. It doesn't matter whether it's $300 or $200 because there's no earnings anyway. So they can create um, – momentum in those types of shares. And unfortunately, those types of shares do make up the bulk of a lot of the NASDAQ and, and the S&P. Uh, there's a, you know, 30, 40% of those companies, uh, talking uh, without precise knowledge, but a lot of them don't have earnings or don't have earnings that are anywhere near your traditional 15 to 20 uh, PEs. I mean, they're, they're, they're hey, they are catastrophic. They're astronomic. Yeah, and, yeah. But yet they can still boost those prices because 
they can't become unaffordable the way a home can become unaffordable. So the housing market is trickier, yes. But they can do things like forward guidance to try to keep rates a little lower. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it's kind of interesting because, you know, the, the, the stock market, it, it should act much more rate sensitive than than it, how it does oftentimes because, absolutely. I mean, you, you look at some of these, and you know, you brought up Tesla, you know, is Tesla sensitive to interest rate hikes? Yeah, I mean, they have an incredible amount of debt. Now, Apple, on the other hand, with a lot of cash, maybe not quite so much, but but absolutely with the amount of corporations out there that are are heavily in debt. You know, you hear about these these zombie corporations, uh, the ones that can barely or maybe not even make their, their interest rate payments on a month-to-month basis. Uh, another quarter percentage point, another half is, I mean, it's kind of game over for them. So well, absolutely. Well, that, that, is, that is where there's an Achilles heel, but that's where the stock price in many instances is tied to their debt service. I think a lot of them have triggers on the, if the stock price is over a certain price, they don't have to pay the, the, the debt obligations don't convert. Well, yeah, that's yeah, that's certainly the case for for uh, Tesla, as far as I know. Um, right. They have a big one coming up, in, I think January. And if they keep January or, or or February, you know, if they keep the stock price above, it's a pretty high level. It's, I think it's just shy of four hundred. Um, then they uh, don't have to to pay out the bond on that one. So, yeah, that's a, that'd be another example of that. Um, you know, an, another kind of interesting thing that I've noticed lately with talking about the Fed is, is uh, in many ways, I, I, I think they've kind of backed themselves into a corner. Um, so there's going to be a lot of talk, you know, coming up in December, their December meeting and, and certainly their, their next meeting, which would be in what, like February or March. or the, I think March is the next one that people are expecting them to, to, uh, to hike rates. Uh, there, there's going to be a lot of, I guess, going back and forth, are they going to continue? Are they going to wait and see or whatever? Um, but, you know, what, what I find really interesting is that regardless of what the Fed is saying right now, regardless of what they do in December or March or whatever, you know, there's another policy that they're undertaking right now, kind of passively, that people have kind of been silent about. And that's the, um, that's the balance sheet unwind, quantitative tightening, uh, which is at its fastest pace now, as of October of this year, they've been unwinding at about $50 billion a month between their, their treasury bonds and, and uh, mortgage-backed securities. And that has the effect of, of tightening, you know, Correct. Uh, maybe not as, a, as, as suddenly as maybe a quarter percentage point in, in uh, the Fed funds rate. Uh, but but that's kind of interesting because they have to you know unlike with a with the um, Fed funds rate where they have to actually take action to tighten the markets or take action to say now we're not going to tighten or whatever this is something that's going on passively in the background that I think people just are not paying attention to enough and they have to take action to actually end it you know they actually have to come out and say you know we uh, we had this goal of normalization and we're nowhere near that you know we're talking you know if this happens six months from now or whatever. Um, but we're going to, you know, stop this policy any, anyways, or we're, we're going to slow it down to $20 billion a month, you know, a snail's pace like that or something like that. And I find that really interesting as well, because that's something, uh, the, the, the liquidity that QE provided to the market, to, to the whole economy as a whole is constantly talked about by, by individuals like you and I, and yet you're seeing a lot of people kind of ignore this ongoing, uh, kind of stealth tightening that a lot of people just, I guess, aren't, um, I guess, cognizant of when we're having this discussion about uh, Fed tightening, I guess. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the other thing they do, what they used to do when they were doing quantitative easing, and then even after they stopped it, they'd continue to roll over the, um, the bond. So one of the things they can do is stop actually selling, but then they can also just allow a lot of the stuff to roll off the balance sheet. I, don't, I haven't looked at 
the portfolio, what the mix is. Of. I don't think they, t- they don't actually tell you what the mix is on well, how many 10 year, 30 year or whatever bonds that they might be holding. Um, they do actually. Yeah. If, oh, you go do. To their, okay. if you go to the website, they have it all. Um, the, the general length from, from 30 to, to year oh, I'm long, sorry. whatever. It's, it's, it's the, the, when you look at the fed tick, when the treasury deploy, you can't tell what the, of the foreigners have. Yes. But, oh, sure. Yep. But the, um, the confidence that they, it's dual edged when they, raise rates you can view that as confidence in the economy you see what i mean because you're saying well we could we can withstand this rate hike if you continue quantitative tightening it's the same thing confidence in the economy you're concerned about a point where they have to come out and say they're not doing it anymore that they're gonna they're gonna stop and the way they would do that is they would couple that with saying well uh, we're going to lower it to a certain amount or we're just going to allow things a wait and see approach. The, the key thing with the Fed is the markets are short term. They they hang on the short term, whereas the Fed is if you think about what they've done through all of their I want to call it BS, but uh, jawboning is they've managed to keep the dollar strong, even though they did seven years, six years of QE. And that takes quite a feat because when they were doing QE, there were points where there was a lot of people saying confidence is lost in the dollar. Then they start talking about, oh, we're going to stop QE. We're going to then they're going to say we're going to taper QE. Then they actually do taper QE. And then they say they're going to raise interest rates. They talked about raising interest rates for almost two and a half years before, before they actually did it. So it's the same thing on the flip side with the quantitative tightening. So you we could be talking about ending quantitative tightening two and a half years from now. Now, you would think they'd start, you know, if there's an issue, a hint of a recession, you'd think they'd start talking about that in March. But I don't think so, unless the stock, it all depends to me on where the stock market and the dollar are. That's what they really have their eye on, the dollar first and then the stock market second. I think Peter Schiff says they would sacrifice the dollar for the stock market. No way, because without the dollar, they don't have the stock market. They don't have a game. They don't have all the things they can do because they have a strong dollar. They don't need the, the dollar index to be at 100, but they can't have it at 60. So they try to keep it within that range. And they have, at the worst parts of QE, it was down in the 70s. And ever since then, you know, they've managed to boost it since the end of QE into the 80s, upper 90s. And I think early 2017, it was over 100. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, you know, I guess all I'm saying is that, you know, it's um, it does have a real effect on on asset prices, whether we're talking about rates in the bond market, in the mortgage markets, that they are, you know, as you said, you know, usually when, when I talk about unwinding their balance sheet, you're right, they're not usually selling. Um, they're, when, when they mature, they're just not reinvesting those funds. They're not, uh, they're basically, they have for a that long is a time. For, that is a form of tightening, though. Yes, it is. It is. For for a long time now, they've been a major buyer in both of these markets. And they're a buyer that they're becoming a smaller and smaller buyer. And so, you know, for, from just a basic economics, you know, supply and demand um, perspective, you, you would expect rates to go up for that reason. Right. And of course, the, the, the um, liquidity that's also kind of removed from the system, from the markets as a whole, um, you'd expect that to, at least if nothing else, make stocks more volatile. And so, um, you know who buys a lot of people have focused on the foreigners that foreigners are dumping treasuries de-dollarization okay 
And that isn't really true. The, the, the Russians dumped about $80 billion, which is a spit in the bucket. The Chinese, the Japanese have tapered a bit, but they still have plenty. But you know who the big buyers are? Are U.S. corporations. Uh, Google, Apple, Facebook. Uh, Apple and Google together have more than Germany have. They have like over $100 billion in treasuries. And with all the cash flowing back in, they got to put it somewhere. Where do you think they put it? They're, they have it in treasuries. Yeah. So that's that's picking up a lot of, of the demand as well. So the Fed doesn't have to be like the Bank of Japan and buy every bond that is issued by the U.S. Treasury. There's plenty of demand for those bonds, and uh, the, the, the amount outstanding just keeps growing, irrespective of how much the Fed may have on their – the Fed may reduce what's on their balance sheet. I think they had about $2 trillion, but uh, the overall amount is like – it's that's unbelievable because you have 60 with the foreigners. It's it's a massive size. So even the Fed's participation is not it's not the most dispositive thing like the Bank of Japan, who basically owns every uh, Japanese bond. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's a that's a whole other conversation. They're talking about Google, Apple, et cetera. And there, um, I guess, a lack of investment, uh, for, for lack of a better term, in Something, I guess, productive. I mean, that's what you'd expect when you have a corporation like Apple with that is just swimming in cash. You expect them to invest that in something. Um, and, and that kind of raises questions like uh, what what is wrong with our economy where they don't feel confident investing that's right. in a new that's major. Uh, you know, people have, have thrown out things like Tesla or, or buying a car company so that they can become begin a, a, an auto company. Right. They can sell cars. I don't know if that's the, the best move for Apple, but something. Um, instead, they're just kind of treading water, you know, a new iPhone, new iPad, wh whatever. Uh, they're selling them. They're, they're what, profitable. They have a very most, high – What most companies do, their goal of all companies is to what they call maximize shareholder value, and that's generally reflected in a higher share price. If you produce better products, if you innovate, you invest in people, products, whatever it is, and you sell more and you get a return on your investment, your stock price goes higher because you make more money. But what companies have figured out in this environment – because the GDP is not roaring and because interest rates are low, they can borrow money and boost the stock price by buying their own shares back. And so that's why you don't have a productive economy because everything looks fine. They invest their money because they realize that investing in products and people and innovation, there's not the large enough demand out there in the market for the products. So there is a demand for the shares. So they cater to that. And if the stock price goes up, it looks like the company's doing well. All the directors and officers' stock options go higher. The employees' stock options go higher. And that's why San Francisco could be, and the Silicon Valley could be a real tinderbox, because all those people working at companies that don't make a dime but have stock options going to the moon, that's why housing prices are so, so high there. It's not because it's such a beautiful place to live, although it is nice out there. But the small houses going for $1.6 can only be financed through people using their – they're not ill-gotten gains, but their company stock option gains, which really are not a function of a normal economy. They're a function of the stock market basically being juiced up. And it doesn't mean that those companies – if they don't make any money, that actually means they haven't allocated their capital properly or there's yeah. no business or there's no business model but the market somehow believes well, I don't say it's the market there's intervention in the market that those companies that don't make any money somehow should be valued in the billions of dollars yeah yeah it it is really an interesting uh situation especially as you're saying in California the, the, again in a whole other conversation there talking about the housing market and 
and uh, just how high it is in, in, in some select cities around the world. You know, I want to close out this conversation with uh, your take on the trade war. We kind of got one of our biggest updates on it, I guess, this past weekend. Uh, There's the big G20 conference. Uh, Trump and his uh, you know, advisors uh, and, and some other leaders had dinner with uh, President Xi Jinping. Um, the, the big headline that the stock markets roared up on was that they're going to call a truce, I think, uh, in December or the end of December. Um, no more tariffs for a set period of time. And, and, and I guess the market didn't really read the fine print. They took that as the trade war is over. U.S. and China are, are going to be friendly again on this terms. And, and long story short, Trump kind of, I guess, shot himself in the foot if his goal was to keep the market up. And he came out and said, no, I'm a tariff guy. I'm, you know, it kind of threw some doubt uh, as to, to, just how solid this agreement was with China. Of course, since then we've had the the uh, rest of um, the the CEO of Huawei, which is a major right uh, Chinese uh, tech company that's been in the news lately. I guess I want to get your take on on where this trade war is going. This is kind of your wheelhouse, more so than mine, uh, geopolitics and whatnot. You have to look at Trump as not being a ideologue on free trade, free markets, for tariffs, against tariffs came out the other day, he said, I'm a tariff man, which went against what it seemed to be his negotiating strategy was to use the tariffs as a weapon in order to get tariffs removed. So, for example, a country B had tariffs of 25 percent and we didn't have any tariffs on their products. He figured, "Okay, we'll raise our tariffs to 25 percent and let's see what you guys do. Maybe you'll lower yours down or maybe we'll both get to zero and that'll be a good thing. And that's what I thought. And I still think that he's looking for balanced trade and that he's using the tariffs in order to get the others to come down. But I think what happened was he came out and he said, look, this is all going to happen in the next 90 days. And then China said, "Uh, hold on, we're not we haven't we haven't confirmed any of that. And that's what I think prompted Trump to say, I'm a tariff man, meaning, okay, if we're not going to clear the decks here, then I'm going to start saying I'm a tariff man. And he starts saying, if you want the privilege of coming into the country with your goods, you're going to have to pay almost irrespective. So I'm not even going for this free trade concept. I'm basically shutting you out right now. And that's the base point, not zero that you're negotiating towards. You're now negotiating towards there's going to be some tariff. Now, a lot of people that are free traders are against tariffs because they think, obviously, there's there's no free trade and the world is a poorer place. People don't remember. Of course, you wouldn't remember. You weren't bored, nor was I. <laughs> but the federal government used to be funded on tariffs, and that's why you didn't have an income tax, because the government was smaller and had to rely on being productive. And if people wanted access to our markets, then they had to pay to bring the, the goods and services in. So it'd be very interesting to see how it all breaks out. But I think I'm tariff man, you know, new superhero Donald Trump, <laughs> is uh, a negotiating tactic I do believe he thinks that the United States is special and you should have to pay to get access to our markets. But I don't think he's saying that you should have to pay amounts where it makes it uh, prohibitive to access our markets. But I think what he's saying is that China basically doesn't pay much at all. And the United States has to pay a lot to get into China. So I think he still has the cards there. I think China's economy is centrally planned and it's been counting on the trade with the U.S. to finance their economy. A lot of commentators say, oh, they're just They'll just turn around and sell the stuff to themselves. It's not that simple. Um, and so I think that 
he's playing the game correctly. He may. I don't know. The other thing is about this uh, executive. The United States didn't arrest her. Canada arrested her. And we don't have the full story. They say she may be extradited to the United States. I haven't seen evidence that she has been. And we're not even sure why. They're saying maybe the company was dealing in Iran. But there's stories that maybe there's some criminality involved in what that she or that company has been doing. Or maybe it has something to do with stealing U.S. trade secrets. I don't know. But they've made it, I think, into a bigger deal that somehow the United States stepped in it by doing this and is pissing off China unnecessarily. The two may be separate. This may just be a, a fraud case. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, something that could have been ongoing well before the G20 meeting or anything like that. I, I found it interesting that, you know, I, I don't apparently Trump wasn't aware of it, but there were some other uh, Justin Trudeau, John Bolton that were aware of uh, mm -hmm. her being arrested during the during the dinner. So that kind of throws another interesting thing in there. Well, is there anything else you wanted to, uh, I guess, leave our viewers with today? No. Nope. I think we're good. I think we'll just have to wait and see how this plays out, and we'll pick it up again in a month or so. Yeah. You know, another thing to, to keep in mind uh, in regards to the stock market and, and the economy as a whole and this whole turmoil and whatever is uh, to remember the time of year here in the United States. We are moving into holiday season. Uh, nobody likes to have talks of, of a stock market crash. You know, you saw the other days, the other day, this uh, um, once again, around holiday time, we're talking about a potential government shutdown that the, the can got kicked down the road for another week or two. And I'm sure we'll find a deal right before Christmas time when no one's paying attention. Now, I would be surprised if we see uh, some rallies in the stock market, um, just less, uh, I guess, talk about, uh, you know, where's the economy going? Is the stock market going to move into a bear market soon? Um, just because of, of uh, perception, you know, um, but I guess that remains to be seen. Who knows? Maybe it'll be different this year. Maybe maybe the holidays uh, won't be as as cheerful for those that that have large holdings uh in their 401ks or or other um other funds in the, the stock big, market the big telling point is going to be when you get the first initial read on holiday shopping yeah yeah from from I mean, black friday cyber monday etc have we seen that yet i haven't seen anything on that i thought i don't saw, know well no i did see we saw that the cyber stuff was up we didn't see was up big time, but I didn't see that. It just doesn't mean it didn't happen. I just didn't see it. But generally, that's how they they gauge the strength of the economy because 70% of U.S. GDP is consumer spending. So it hasn't appeared to slow down. Yeah. Well, you know, of course, Friday, uh, Black Friday came around and, and the headlines were as usual, you know, record numbers, you know, record amount. Of, I don't know. Who is measuring that and who is, you know, you can't make measurements over that such a short period of time. Um, well, you won't know until that's at the point. You really won't know until you see the uh, preliminary results of companies, retail companies, and that won't happen until the first quarter of 2019. Right. And of course, if they're low, people will just say, uh, well, it was really cold that evening on the East weather. Coast, so, and yeah. we talk about the weather as if they didn't know what the weather was when they made the, when they made their forward looking predictions. We knew what yeah. the weather was in November and December. Yeah, exactly. Well, anyways, it's been great talking with you again, Lewis. Likewise. All right. I'll uh, maybe have you on again and I can come on your channel, whatever, for uh, in January or, you know, whenever yep. more of this kind of plays out. Yeah, let's do that. Maybe even for, for everyone's benefit, we do a mutual live stream. Yeah, absolutely. That would, uh, I don't know how we'd rig that up. I'm sure there's a, there's a way to do it other than using Hangouts so that we can both do it. Unless oh, we just did it on one of our channels or something. You, do, you could do it. I've done it once. You do it on one of the channels, and then you just uh, 
hook the other person in on Skype and they you can hear them and then the questions come through on my channel, your channel, and then you can see them because you're logged into that to that chat. Okay, great. Yeah, that, that makes sense. All right, well, learn something new every day. All right. <laughs> All right, I'll see you around. All right, bye. Yeah, bye.